0: You never know how a sequel is going to turn out. Every once in a while, a sequel turns out better than the original. Toy Story 2, Paddington 2, The Empire Strikes Back, The Wrath of Khan. That's a great one. More often, of course, the sequels are a disgrace. You wish you had never seen it. The story is lame. The characters get ruined. They introduce new cast members that you're not interested in. In some cases, The story undoes or undoes. (laughs) But I can edit the video, so that's all that matters. (laughs) In some cases, they undo much of what you loved about the original. If you look up lists of the worst sequels, almost without exception, Superman 4, The Quest for Peace is on uh, every single list. Which I find really sad because that was a staple of my childhood. I I think Superman 4 is awesome, even though it is rated as one of the worst movies ever made. Nuclear Man, come on, that was great. Now, when we were last in the book of Genesis, we looked at one of the defining scenes of Abraham's life. Him and God there under the night sky counting the stars. That magnificent evening was followed up with God making a dramatic covenant, binding himself of his own free will to Abraham and his descendants forever. And tonight it's the sequel. And man, is it a bomb? If it it weren't for the grace of God, this would have killed the franchise like Superman four killed the Superman franchise. But Terrible groupthink and bad onset behavior cannot stop the providence of God, and it can't sour the grace of God. So let's take a look, starting in verse one. Abram's wife, Sarai, had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Abraham and Sarah were very concerned about the fact that they had no children. It took up a lot of space in their minds. And now they're at an age where it seemed more and more impossible that God's promise could come to pass. We're left to assume that Hagar was one of the servants that Pharaoh had given to Abraham back in chapter 12 when they had taken that ill-advised trip down to Egypt. And so Hagar, though a real person who really existed, she symbolizes for us a, a variety of things. And in one case, she symbolizes for us the provision of the world. Uh, that which the world provides, that which the world offers to us. We know that this scene in Genesis 16 speaks of the difference between the flesh and the spirit and the efforts of those. Because we're told as much in Galatians chapter 4. And this story also foreshadows the difference between the old covenant and the new covenants. One based, off of, based on legalism and one based on grace. Now your translation may call Hagar a maidservant. Language scholars point out that that is too genteel a word, too polite for what she was and how she was treated by this family. We'll see that Abraham and Sarah treat her with no respect, no dignity, no kindness. She is a slave, the lowest kind of a slave uh, in this household. Until the close of the chapter, she's treated roughly as a possession to be exploited. Verse two says, Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave, perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. Sarah's end goal wasn't bad. Uh, Her end goal was that she wanted a family. She wanted children. She wanted to build that, uh, that, that ongoing family line. Isn't that what God wanted for them too? Well, it was, but let's examine where her plan came from. Sarah begins with a declaration that God has failed. God has failed us, and so we need to put a plan together. She blames the Lord for preventing her from having children. And in doing so, she assumes that none are forthcoming in the future. God has prevented me. And I suppose we could make a case that God had not allowed her to have a child so far. But in that declaration, she's also saying, and therefore I'm not going to have any children in the future either. And so she assumes that none are coming. And of course we know that God had not failed. It just wasn't time yet. He was working on a specific timeline. And we've seen throughout the book of Genesis, how carefully God plans things. He does his work according to a specific timeline motivated by his compassionate mercy. He hadn't failed. He hadn't dropped the ball. They just didn't understand the scale at which God was working and the timing at which God was working. Now, not only did Sarah go to the drawing board with bitterness in her heart, we see that she was drawing from the world's playbook. This scheme to use a slave girl as a surrogate wasn't something that she came up with. This was widely acceptable and even codified in the surrounding culture. They have references to this exact thing, taking a slave girl in and using her to father a child when, when the mistress of the house could not have a, a child. The Code of Hammurabi talks about it, some Egyptians writing, writings talk about it, some other places as well. And so this was what the world did in a situation like they found themselves in. Now, had Sarah gone to the Lord with her hurt and her earnest desire to see his promise fulfilled, we must conclude that she would have received comfort and direction and more clarity from God. And we have to conclude that because that's exactly what had happened to Abraham in the very last chapter. Abraham, remember, had gone to God and poured out his heart to God and he was just bummed out and he was stressed out. He said, Lord, what's gonna happen? My inheritance is gonna go to some guy who was just born in my house. He's not, you know, my own son. And the Lord comforted him and gave him clarity and gave him direction and gave him help. And so what we see here is Sarah is using human math and human engineering, and she's leaving God out of this equation altogether and has said, hey, we, we tried waiting for God and he missed the train. And so we're going on without him. Scholars point out that as she speaks in this passage, she uses the language of the world. In fact, she speaks pretty coarsely, even vulgarly in some of her words throughout this text. We can bring this up to date in a lot of ways, but let's just uh, do one. Let's apply this to ministry work as members of a church and members of Christ's body uh, universal. We are meant to go and make disciples, right? That is the great commission. We are to go out and be a part of increasing the family of faith. We're meant to be sanctified and to grow and to conform into the image of God, but also the Lord says, hey, go out and make disciples, increase numerically the family of faith. Often though the end goal is worthy, churches turn to human methods, human means, human engineering, human math, to try to accomplish that worthy spiritual goal. They use the world's culture to try to increase the size of the church. They use the world's methodology, the world's mentality, the world's enticements in order to numerically grow the family of faith in their local church. And and the problem is that that's the same mindset Sarah had, and it's a disastrous one. And not only does it lead to a lot of problems, the, the growth that it does provide is a counterfeit increase. We all look back at this passage and we say, this is a bad scene. This is a bad misstep. Uh, in the life of Abraham and his family. But if we apply the same methodology and the same mentality to the way that we go out and try to impact our community for the, for the Lord and with the gospel, we're making the same mistake with a bunch of troubles that are going to be added in. Be that as it may, Abraham thinks the plan is good. He agrees with his wife. The problem is it was not how the Lord had been leading Remember, God was not only their God and not only their creator and not only you know, someone who appeared to them from time to time, but God had made himself a covenant partner in Abraham's life. Abraham had the responsibility to go to the Lord for approval for this because it concerned the very thing God had spoken to him about more than once, way back in the Earl of the Chaldees and even just in the last passage, God went to these great lengths To talk to Abraham about this very thing, if you're a fan of Shark Tank, Uh, Sometimes what will happen if you, you know, they come in, they pitch their business or they pitch their product uh, and they say, hey, we want you guys to become partners with us. And every now and then they're about to make a deal and then the the person pitching has to let it slip that, by the way, there's another partner that isn't here with me right now. They own 51% of the company and they're in Barbados somewhere. And then the deal dies, right? Because the sharks say hey, you have to okay it with them. You're not even allowed to make this decision right now. And so think of it that way. I mean, Abraham needs to go to God who is his covenant partner in his life and yet he's not going to. Verse three, so Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar, her Egyptian slave and gave her to her husband, Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. They could try to justify it or rationalize it in their own minds. But Abraham and Sarah are making a huge mistake here. Hagar had really no say in it. She's a piece of property legally speaking and they're treating her as such. But rather than trusting God, Abraham and Sarah are trying to take the reins of their lives into their own hands, steer their lives according to a new trail that they wanna blaze for themselves and And on top of all of that, and this is really important for us, they're absolutely failing to protect their marriage relationship. This is the same type of mistake that had been Abraham's idea back in chapter 12, right? Where they were in another tight spot, where they were in another situation where they thought, what are we gonna do? Let's do this. And they didn't consult the Lord and they went outside of the direction of the Lord and they went against what God had revealed. They go down to Egypt and as a result, they are playing really fast and loose with the marriage relationship and that almost ended in disaster. And they're doing this again. They're both just refusing to protect and guard their marriage relationship as husband and wife. The marriage relationship is meant to be the closest human relationship that you have. Now. Then I'm talking about Christians. If you're not a Christian, good luck out there. It's gonna be rough sailing because if you are not a new creation and if you don't know how to have the love of God in you, you are programmed by sin to be selfish and not selfless. You are programmed to care about yourself more than you care about everybody else when the chips are down. So I'm talking to Christians right now. But the marriage relationship is meant to be the closest human relationship you have, period period no one closer you are one flesh with your spouse the bible says your marriage relationship it is meant to be unique and consecrated and protected if you're married you are not to allow anyone else to occupy that place of closeness or intimacy or connection or friendship that you pledged to your spouse before god and these witnesses and you should help your spouse avoid these kinds of mistakes which which introduce foreign elements into your marriage relationship. And, and the, the goal is not that you're living your separate lives or you're bringing other people into these, uh, this relationship of friendship or anything like that. But your goal is that you are strengthening each other and at the same time strengthening your oneness together, fusing yourselves together all along. Verse four says, he slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. When she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. Until this point, Hagar isn't to be blamed, right? she It's distasteful and it's a bummer, but in this time and in this culture and in her situation, she was a piece of property. We obviously don't sign off on that. It's not a good thing. We don't do that anymore. Praise the Lord. But there wasn't a lot, she, she couldn't say, no, I don't want to be a part of any of this. Maybe she did say that. And so up until verse four, Hagar's not to be blamed, but now we have to see that her heart is filling up with pride. We don't know if she's really a believer or not. She's going to be a believer by the end of our text, but her heart fills up with pride and she begins to show contempt for Sarah. In the eyes of society, Hagar would now be seen as the primary wife since she was the one who could bear a child and Sarah was barren. Out in the culture, she was no longer seen as a slave. And we saw that earlier in the verses that she was given as a wife. And so she was gonna be seen as the primary mistress of the household in the eyes of the world around them. And you know what, Hagar let Sarah know quite a bit. And she became contemptible in Hagar's eyes. Success, material success, is not always a mark of God's approval or favor. By human math, their equation worked, right? Hey, our plan worked great. Everything that we engineered out is working perfectly, and look, we have success, God must be happy, God must be shining upon us, we must have done a good thing, because look, we've got a a baby coming. And this shows us that success is not always a mark of God's approval or favor. What we're seeing here was the last thing that God wanted for this family. Now his grace was sufficient to deal with their sin, but this is not what God wanted. I'm sure they were celebrating at first, but we see that it quickly turned to resentment and discord and problem after problem after problem. Verse five. And Sarah, said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. I put my slave in your arms. And when she saw that she was pregnant, I became contemptible to her. May the Lord judge between me and you. Now that things have turned out terribly, Sarah is ready to involve the Lord. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of comedic, except for that this is, a, this is a tough scene. We are eavesdropping on a bad argument in the Abraham tent right now. Uh, and and, and this, is a, this is a bad scene. The truth is, Uh, You know, obviously Sarah is, uh, is responding emotionally, maybe she is reacting in a way that is on some level unfair, but the truth is Abraham should have put a stop to Sarah's idea right away. It was his responsibility to honor what the Lord had told him. It was his responsibility to protect his marriage relationship. It was his responsibility to say, hey, we don't live like the world. He had done that just a couple passages ago. What happened when the king of Sodom was like, why don't you take this? And why don't you take that? And he says, "I don't want, I don't want a sandal strap from you. I don't want one thread from you. I live differently. We're people who follow the one true God. But the problem is now that we're removed from that, now within the, his own tent, he's letting this idea of, of separation and following after God lapse. Sure, when he's in front of an Amorite or someone from Sodom, he says, hey, I follow God. But inside the house and this situation, he was allowing himself to say, why don't we live a little bit more like the world? And it led to a, a real disaster here. He should have put a stop to this idea. Instead, he went along and now they are reaping the crop of carnal choices. The Bible's very clear. It's not just an Old Testament thing. It's not just a parable thing. We reap what we sow, right? If we sow to the flesh, we're gonna reap of the flesh. If we sow to the spirit, we're gonna reap of the spirit. And so we wanna be careful about what we are sowing into our lives, not just our public facing lives, but our lives within the tent. Verse six says, Abraham replied to Sarah, your slaves in your power, do whatever you want with her. Then Sarai mistreated her so much that she ran away from her. This is an absolute scandal. This is a scandal. This is a, a shameful debacle that we are seeing right here. We are talking about the first family of faith. And this is abhorrent behavior. Sarah wasn't just a little bit rude. The term Moses uses for mistreated here is the very same one that he's going to use to describe how the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites when they were calling out to God, please, won't you save us? You remember when the Egyptians were like murdering all of the baby boys of Israel and were beating them and enslaving them and doing all these horrible things to them, which caused God to move in such a mighty way that the entire nation of Egypt was laid waste. That's the essence of how Sarah was treating Hagar. Just as it was culturally acceptable to use Hagar as a surrogate, it was also culturally acceptable for her to now treat her harshly. She is a slave after all. But this is obviously completely outside what is acceptable to the Lord. Our God is tender and gracious and long-suffering and meek. We are to be conformed to that image not the image of a harsh and brutal world. As far as sequels go, this is as bad as it gets. This is Thor Dark World level bad. (laughs) It's really just such a bad movie, you guys. I like the Marvel movies like most people, but man. Luckily, a surprise cameo is gonna redeem this picture. Directors like Alfred Hitchcock, Peter Jackson, and Martin Scorsese are known for showing up in their films in a scene or two. People loved seeing Stan Lee, the creator of all those wonderful comics in each MCU movie until he died. We cut to Hagar in the desert, desperate, alone, unprotected, no supplies, pregnant, and suddenly the creator makes a cameo. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring in the wilderness, the spring on the way to shore. So Hagar's headed back to Egypt. Now how do we know that this is God? Well, Hagar's gonna identify him as God in verse 13 and he will not correct her. And more importantly, this figure makes an I will promise to Hagar. Some say, well, it's just an angel speaking for God, but that isn't consistent with what we're reading here. No, this is what we call a theophany or sometimes we call it a Christophany. And what that means is that it's a time before Jesus became incarnate, before he became the God-man, Jesus existed. He is eternal. He has always existed. He is the second person of the Trinity. And so he sometimes would come and visit earth and interact with people. And this is one of those times. We call it a theophany. And here we have the very first reference in the Bible to the angel of the Lord. Now, for sure, Jesus had made trips to Uh, the earth previous to this, probably talking to Noah and and we've talked a little bit about that, but this is the first time that the angel of the Lord is referenced in the biblical text. And where do we find him doing the first time we see this figure in the the not flesh, I guess? (laughs) He's come to find a hopeless, sinful Egyptian slave girl. She didn't find him, he found her. Verse eight, he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She replied, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. We sense the tenderness, not only by what he said, but how she responded, how this is playing out. Listen, alone in the desert is no place for a woman in her condition. It was not safe for her to be out here there on, on her own on a variety of different levels. And yet... When, even though the approach of a strange man should have frightened her, what do we see? She doesn't recoil at his presence. She doesn't try to hide away. She doesn't break out into a sprint for her life. There must have been something deeply comforting and compassionate about him as he approached. When he speaks, he calls her by name. One scholar points out that this is the only known instance in ancient Near Eastern literature where a deity addresses a woman directly by name. It is one of the unique uh, figures of the Bible. But he does not coddle her. He identifies her as a slave, a slave to Sarah. He says, hey, Hagar, you, the slave of Sarah. That's a big deal. And she admits that she has abandoned her duty. She speaks humbly and truthfully. She doesn't bring up the mistreatment she had endured. Perhaps she realized that this person already knew all about it. Verse 9 The angel of the Lord said to her, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. Go back? What are you talking about? I was suffering. I was mistreated. I was enslaved. And the Lord said, yeah, that's right. Go back. You see, God wasn't happy that she was being afflicted. That's why he came to talk to her. He was responding to her cry for help and deliverance. But his response was, you need to go back because he had something greater planned for her life than simply avoiding suffering. Now, at the time, Hagar's plan was understandable and it's one that we mentally identify with very easily. Her plan was, let's avoid suffering. Let's get out of this situation. It probably means I'll starve in the desert. It probably means I've got nothing left for me. Even if I make it to Egypt, who knows, but at least I won't be suffering under Sarah, which is what I'm enduring right now. It's not a great plan. Now, God, meanwhile, had a great and awesome plan for her life that, yes, included some difficulty, even some suffering, but it was a much better alternative than what she had planned for herself. What was God's plan? Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. So this Gentile was going to get in on God's incredible promise and provision. Was that end result worth the price of admission? Price of admission is pretty steep if you ask me. God did not tell her, and by the way, I worked it out so Sarah's not going to treat you badly anymore. He says, just go back and submit to Sarah. He makes no promises about how she's going to be treated. Was it worth the price of admission? It seems that Hagar was shocked at what God was saying. We see he speaks to her in verse nine, she doesn't respond. In verse 10, it says, and so the angel of the Lord said something else to her. She still doesn't respond. Verse 11, and so the angel of the Lord spoke to her again. And so it's interesting. It seems that she was shocked at what he was saying, both the promise that he had given and his directive to go back to that terrible job. So the Lord continues in verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and will bear a son, You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. The name Ishmael means God hears or may God hear. So in this short scene, we learn a lot about this God that we serve. We learn that he sees you and that he hears you. We learn that he knows what's going on in your mind and your body. He knew she was pregnant after all. He knows your past. He knows your future. He knows the struggles you're dealing with. He knows the hurts deep in your heart. And he moves on your behalf. He responds to your cries for help. And he does so to give you life more abundantly if you will believe him and obey. And so we've learned a lot about this wonderful God in this short interaction. Verse 12: This man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle nearer all his relatives. Ishmael and his descendants are described as being strong and independent, living outside of civilized society, one commentary says. The Lord compares him to a particular breed of donkey called the Syrian onager. It's extinct now, went extinct in 1927, the last two died. But it was known for great beauty and strength compared to thoroughbred horses historically. In fact, there's one Greek historian who was also a military man who had eyewitness account of these donkeys, and he talked about how they were able to outrun horses, and they would often taunt their pursuers as, as you went after them to try to catch them. They would run away, and then they would stop and let you catch up, and then run away and stop and let you catch up. They could not be domesticated. So this prophecy in verse 12 has continued to be true of Ishmael's descendants, which includes some of the Arab people who still live in opposition to the sons of Israel. Verse 13 says, so she named the Lord who spoke to her, you are El Roy, for she said, in this place have I actually seen the one who sees me? This is why the well is called Bir Lahai Roy. It is between Kadesh and Bered. This is an amazing turn of events. She gives God a name. I mean, we read that and probably most of us are familiar with the story, but think for a minute about what a big deal that is, that she says, I'm gonna give you a name. And God says, yeah, let's go ahead and record that down in the book. I don't think Jean is that obscure of a name, but historically, anytime I've gone to Starbucks, buckle up. They they just give me, they give me another name every time I've ever gone to Starbucks. I, I, this is what happens. Actually, this is what happens now. I try to, if I, go, if I have to go to Starbucks, something's gone terribly wrong. But if I go, I got to pay in cash and I give them my middle name, Joseph. Everybody can handle that. I go Gene, G-E-N-E. And all kinds of things come back. I don't know if I'm being punked or what. My favorite one that I ever got back was Chi, C-H-I. You know, like Shang-Chi. And I said, yeah, that's right. That's me, Chi. So I don't really like being given a different name but here's what we see. She's giving God a name and he goes with it. Some linguists believe that Hagar is saying something like, wait, I saw God and I didn't die, that she's speaking in astonishment. She's in shock. You see, that's what people thought would happen if God showed up in their presence. They thought they would die. Uh, Think of Samson's parents in Judges 13. (laughs) The angel of the Lord comes and talks to them and then talks to Samson's mom, and then she says to her husband, hey, the angel of the Lord came, and he says, I don't think so, and then the angel of the Lord shows up again, and she says, hey, he's back, and then they come and have this whole conversation about all the stuff he's gonna do, and then he leaves, and he's like, oh, it's the angel of the Lord, we're about to die, and she says, we're not gonna die because he told us all this stuff about how we're gonna have a kid, but mentally, they thought that if I saw God, I was going to die, and since this is God, how is it that I'm not dead? Here, Hagar starts to think that she might not understand as much about God as she thought. She expected crushing. Instead, she discovered that this God is not only a real living person, but he sees and he hears and he comes in search and he speaks and he directs and he protects and he provides and he intends and he comforts and he helps. That's who God actually is. Not this strange idea that they kind of carried around with in their superstition, but a God of love and grace. Verse 15, so Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. This is a very unexpected conclusion. We see significant growth here, great humility. The family of faith is back on track and making progress in their walk with the Lord. Hagar returned. Uh, without any guarantee that her day-to-day would improve. And we see that when she told Abraham what had happened, he not only believed her, but he humbled himself under the word of God and submitted accordingly. He named the boy Ishmael, God hears, as in God hears how you've been afflicting Hagar. He says, yeah, I'm gonna submit myself under that. I'm gonna humble myself. I'm gonna turn back to God in repentance and go his way again. What a great moment this is for us to witness because God's people aren't perfect. You're not perfect, neither am I. It's unreasonable to expect that believers won't make mistakes. They do, we do. The question is, are we being conformed into God's image or are we trying to wrestle our lives away from the Lord and go our own way, blaze our own trail? Are we progressing in our walk of faith? It's not gonna be done perfectly but that is God's plan for us. Are we progressing in our submission to God's word as we uh, as more and more of it is revealed to our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit? Are we decreasing so that the Lord might increase in us? Abraham would have to wait another 14 years before the son of promise finally arrived. Hagar would have to live a long time as a servant. It wasn't going to be easy. But they were moving forward in God's plan and provision, and that was a good thing. So much better than the alternative. People love film franchises. The Marvel Cinematic Universe currently holds the title for most movies, 27 to date. James Bond is number two with 25 movies. The number three spot is held by the oldest movie franchise. This was news to me. It's been around for 90 years, the Mummy movie franchise. It started in all the way back in 1932 and has made just 19 really not very good movies. (laughs) I think there's that one that people liked. But listen, your life is the next sequel in God's marvelous charismatic universe. Uh, Charismatic, broken down, the word simply means gifts of grace, right? So we're not making a denominational statement here. (laughs) God still intends to lead you forward by his generous grace given to you, to lead you into new growth of love and compassion and activity and submission to his word. Let him have creative control so that your sequel is as good as the original. Recognize that your role is of a beloved servant sent to endure whatever is required in order to accomplish the director's creative vision. If we go his way rather than our own, the story will be a triumph and we will be glorified as we bring him glory and praise.